Y'all turn with me to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 19. Mark 11, 12 through 19. You know, when I was years ago, uh, you know, I'm wearing a pink shirt today. It's the first time I've worn this shirt. Um, I didn't always feel good wearing pink. I remember I was in my late 20s and my brother gave me a pink shirt for Christmas. And I took it home and I said to my wife, you know, I don't know. I mean, is this okay? Can a guy wear a pink? And she said, you know, some men are just masculine enough to pull that off. And that's all she said. <laughs> so dadgummit, I wore that shirt, okay? I was, I was going to show her. So that kind of broke the, broke the streak for me, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable with pink now. But uh, we're continuing today a series on the last days of Jesus, the, the days of glory, what we would call Holy Week or Passion Week, the week leading up to the best day in human history, Easter Sunday. Last week, we looked at the day Jesus rode into Jerusalem at the start of the Passover on the, on the colt of a donkey, his triumphal entry, when he was basically proclaiming through symbolic gestures that I am the Messiah, I'm the one that's been promised, the one that's been prophesied, the one you've been waiting for, but I'm not the kind of Messiah you've been expecting. And he lived up to that, didn't he? Today, we're going to look at what happened the very next day. Mark says that when he rode into Jerusalem with all those people cheering, the first thing he did was go to the temple and look around for a while, and then he went back and left the city. And, and the Gospels tell us that all through that week, he and his disciples spent the nights in Bethany, which was just two miles away up on the Mount of Olives, and they were probably staying with, uh, with their friends Lazarus and Mary and Martha. We're going to look at what happened on Monday, the day after the triumphal entry. Look with me at verse 12 of chapter 11 of Mark. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. So there's two stories here, and one of them is familiar to a lot of us, and, and another one is a little more obscure. But both of them show us a side of Jesus that some of us didn't know was there. Some of us would rather not think about, but either way, it sort of disturbs the tidy little image we have of him. So I want to look at both of these stories because both of them are sending basically the same message, a very important message, a very shocking message in its day, but as I'm going to show you at the end, a message that is tremendously joyful for us. So what's up with this cursing a fig tree thing? That doesn't seem like Jesus at all, does it? He goes up to this tree. It's not even the season when it should have figs, and he gets mad at it, and he curses it. We didn't read it, but later on, if you kept on reading in Matthew 11, you would see, or Mark 11, you would see that the next day when he and the disciples were on their way back into Jerusalem, they saw that same fig tree, and the disciples said, look, Lord, it's, it's dead. Just overnight, it, it cratered just because of what you said. And it sounds to us kind of petulant. If I, if I went into your yard and, and you had a pear tree or a peach tree and I, I was like, man, you ain't got no pears for me and I squirted it with Roundup, 
you'd call the cops on me, wouldn't you? I'd, I'd be a jerk. And that's kind of what it seems like Jesus is doing here, but it's not. It's not what Jesus is doing. He's not mad. He's not, he's not acting like a brat. He is sending a signal, a very deliberate signal. See, in the Old Testament, Israel was often pictured metaphorically as a vine or a fig tree. And you think about that image for just a moment. In a dry and dusty land, a fig, a fig tree or a, or a vine full of grapes would be a very inviting thing. And it would draw people to it. People and animals would come to that because that would be a source of nourishment. It would bless others. It would be a blessing to have. In fact, that was sort of an image of prosperity. If you were, if you were doing well, you had your own vine and your own fig tree. And that's what Israel was supposed to be. Israel was supposed to be this fruitful tree in the middle of a dry and broken world. And it would bear fruit, not literal fruit. It would, it would bear the fruit of the Spirit. It would bear love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And so all the world would see, this is what people look like when they follow the one true God. And they would be drawn to set aside their false gods and follow the God of Israel, the one true God. And Jesus, when he walks up to this fig tree, and the disciples know and he knows there's not going to be any fruit on it, and he curses it, what's he doing? He's sending a very deliberate signal to those disciples. And that's why Mark points out, and his disciples heard him say it. He points that out because what Mark is saying is they got the message. It's not a message they wanted to hear. The message was, Israel used to be my, my fig tree in the middle of the world, and now it's not. It's not born fruit. It hasn't lived up to its promise. It hasn't done what I put it there to do. And so I'm making another way. Now keep in mind what he's not saying. He's not saying, well, God doesn't like the Jews anymore. God loves the Jewish people today as much as he ever did and as much as he loves any one of us. And in fact, if you read Romans 11, it says very clearly that the Jewish people will have a part to play in this world at the very end. God will bring Israel back into his kingdom. And I think that's why, that's why, by the way, if you're a history buff, you know Gentiles down through the centuries have tried their best to eliminate the Jews, and they're still here because God has a plan for them. So this is not an anti-Jewish text. This is simply saying, because trust me, if God would have chosen Chinese people or German people or African people or, or South American people to, to be his chosen ones, we would have failed too. Whoever, whoever God would have chosen. It's just human nature. This is simply saying, okay, I showed you that it can't work through some human instrument. I'm making another way. Now let's get to the other part, the part about cleansing the temple. Some of us remember this story. Some of us have heard it taught. We've seen depictions of it in film. I want to I share a couple of things. There are a couple of misconceptions about the story of Jesus cleansing the temple that I want to clear up. One is the idea that the, the main point of this story is that you shouldn't buy and sell things on church grounds. And I've known a lot of Christians down through my life who interpreted the story that way, and they have very strong convictions about that. And you may be one of those. And I'm not trying to pick a fight with you if you are. I, I respect you and respect your beliefs, but let me, let me share with you why I don't think that's what this is about. For instance, I don't think this means that if we host a band or a, a singer at our church or a choir, that it's wrong for them to sell their CDs in the atrium. I don't think that's the case. And here's why. People who believe that, I believe they make the mistake of equating the temple with modern-day church buildings. See, there was one temple in Jerusalem. 
And there were very specific requirements in the Old Testament, in the law of Moses, of how you treat that temple and what you do there and what you don't do there. And a lot of folks, a lot of Christians today, look at our church buildings, especially the worship area, the sanctuary, as if it's a temple. And it's not. It's not. Let me be clear about something. If you read the New Testament, you'll never see any instructions about what to do with your buildings. It never talks about, well, you should have pews, or no, 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 you should have movable chairs, or you should, you should make sure that it's in a sacred place, you should have stained glass. No, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that it's right or wrong to bring food or drink into the, into the sanctuary. By the way, our policy is no food or drink, but that's our policy. That's not from Scripture. You know the reason why the New Testament doesn't address church buildings? Because Christians then didn't have church buildings. They met in homes. They met out in the open. They met in the temple sometimes. But they didn't have their own buildings. This was a new thing. The temple is something very different. And we're going to get into what the temple is in just a moment. But please understand, the buildings we have are wonderful. The men and women who donated to build these and planned for these buildings did a fantastic job. I am grateful to get to serve God in these buildings. But they're just buildings. If for some reason we came back next Sunday and it was all gone, we'd still be First Baptist Church. We could meet in a, in a shopping mall or a government building or a school or under a, a really, really big shade tree, and we'd still be First Baptist Conroe, okay? So building is just a building. The temple was unique. The second, the second misconception I want to correct here is people have a tendency to try to tame this story and make it seem a lot less violent than it actually was. We want to see Jesus as being so incredibly meek and so incredibly level-headed that we can't picture him losing it, but he did. See, when you see movie depictions of this story, here's how it goes. It's some tall, thin British guy, white, with pristine white robes, and he's sort of prancing around and tipping over these flimsy tables, and, and he opens a, 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 a cage, and some white doves fly out, and it's really kind of beautiful. It's like performance art. But there are a couple of things in this, a couple of details that show me what Jesus did here was very violent, was scary even. One is, Gospel of John says, and you can look it up, John, in his account of this story, says that Jesus made a whip out of cords. You don't make a whip unless you're going to beat some people, okay? Can I be frank about that? You don't make a whip unless you're going to put a whooping on people. And he may not have used the term whooping, but that's the South Texas version. Um, I, I believe that people ran out of the temple that day with, with lash marks across their face, with bloody noses, with terror in their eyes. The other detail, and this is important, Jesus cleared the temple. Now, let me show you what I mean when I say the temple. Um, there's a diagram that is up there right now. You see the yellow area? That's the court of the Gentiles. The temple was not just a building. It was a complex of buildings. It was an ever-expanding series of courtyards, and the court of the Gentiles was the outermost court. It's called the court of the Gentiles. Why? Because that was the only area in the temple that people like you and me who didn't have Jewish blood could go. God had made a way for people to get to him, and that was in that area of the temple. Now, um, if, you, if you look, the next picture is of an artist's rendition or an artist's re rendering of the temple. Kind of impressive. Looks like a photograph, but it's not. Um, you see that outer area, that big wide area before the big brick walls, that's the court of the Gentiles. That's a lot of real estate. 
Jesus cleared that entire area, okay? Now think about this for just a moment. Imagine, I know this is kind of crazy, I'm thinking like a seventh grade boy now, but imagine if someone gave you a million dollars and said, you can win this million dollars if you manage to clean out, clear out everybody from the food court at the mall at Christmas time. Okay? What would it take? For that matter, what would it take for you to get one family to get up from the table and leave their food? You'd have to be pretty scary. What would it take to get you to, to get one manager of, of Chick-fil-A or Panda Express or one of those other places to leave his money and his merchandise behind and run in fear? How scary would you have to be? How violent would you have to act? Keep in mind, Jesus didn't run into this place spraying bullets in the air with an AK-47. He was unarmed. How scary did Jesus have to be? How violent did he have to act to clear that entire territory. And it says, it says he not only cleared them out, he wouldn't let them come back. So when I think about this, I'm pretty sure that if I had been Jesus' friend then, I wouldn't have wanted to be around him. I'd have been like, hey, hey, Jesus, I've got a question for you. And they look at me and I'd be like, yeah, I'll talk to you tomorrow. Because he was seriously angry. This was not performance art. This was real anger. Why was he so mad? That brings up the question. Why was Jesus so angry? Well, that gets to what the temple really was. It wasn't just a building where you went to worship. See, the the Scriptures tell us that when God made man, when God made human beings, male and female, At the first, we had a perfect relationship with him. We could walk with him. We could see him with our eyes. We could hear him with our ears. We were one with God. And then sin entered the picture, and we became estranged from him. Do you know why God kicked Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden? It wasn't because he was mad at them. It was because he loved them. It was because he knew from now on, you can't be in my presence anymore. If you're near me, you will die. My holiness will break out against you and you will die. And so I'm expelling you because I love you and you don't want you to die. But he also knew that our lifeblood, our, 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 very, our very essence was in knowing him and being in contact with him. So we may not die instantly if, we're in his pres- if we weren't in his presence, but if we're separated from him, we'll die slowly. Either way, we die. And God knew, I've got to make a bridge. I've got to make a way for human beings to come to know me and spend time with me and and receive from me the love that they need. And for God, that bridge was the temple. He created a people called Israel, his fig tree in the middle of the desert. And right there in the middle of Jerusalem, on the highest part of that city, in the Temple Mount, there was the bridge. There was the place you would go. That's where heaven and earth met, the only place on earth where God dwelt. If you wanted to get right with God, you came to him. And you came to him with the best of what you had, whether it was a bull or a goat, whether it was a sheep, whether it was something from your field, and you'd bring it before God, and the priest would go in before him and stand in your place and would offer that sacrifice, and you would walk away knowing, I'm right with my God. It was the bridge. But here's why Jesus was so angry. It had ceased to fulfill that function. Again, what part of the temple did he clear out? The court of the Gentiles. Why was he mad about that area being occupied? You see it in his words. He says, my God made this to be a house of prayer for the nations. Guess what, El- Guess what word in Hebrew is the same as the word nations? It's the word Gentiles. Same thing. The court of the Gentiles is the court of the nations. What he's saying is, God made this to be a place where all the nations would come and worship me. 
but you're doing so much business here, they can't get in to see me. You have taken what I meant to be a bridge, bringing people to me, and you've turned it into just a place for a bunch of you to make money. You've, you've turned it into a place for a few of you to have a particular kind of religious and social power and, and engage in commerce with one another. This temple is no longer a bridge between God and man. It's a way of propping up the power and the wealth of a select few. And that made Jesus angry. In fact, it made him fighting mad. And so here I need to take some time to talk about the subject of anger. Here's the part of the sermon where I offend everyone, okay? You ready? Anybody asleep? You might want to wake them up because they need their, sto- their toes stepped on. Okay. Most people you can basically form into two groups. Most people fit into one of two groups. There's, e- there's people who are very, very nice, and there are people who are walking volcanoes, okay? And all of us fit on the, on the continuum somewhere in between there, but those, those are the two basic categories. And what I want to tell you today is Jesus isn't like either one of us. He's not like either group. It might be hard for you to hear this, but the truth is Jesus is not nice. Jesus was not a nice man. Let me define what I mean by that. Jesus was kind. Kindness means that we care about others, that we're aware of their needs and we meet their needs. We treat them the way they want to be treated. He was gentle. Gentleness means uh, someone who has the ability to hurt someone and probably the motive to hurt someone but chooses not to. Jesus was kind and gentle, but he wasn't nice. See, niceness is different. Niceness doesn't have anything to do with what you need or, or what's important to you. Niceness has to do with what you think of me. If I'm nice, I'm nice because I want you to like me, and I don't want you to be angry with me, and I don't want to offend you because then I, I won't be able to sleep at night because I know that you're upset with me. Niceness is all about me. Jesus wasn't nice. Nice people don't say things like, no one comes to the Father except through me. Or, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nice people don't say to their best friend, get behind me, Satan. Nice people don't point out the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of their nation, men who cared more about appearing to be righteous than about loving their neighbor. Nice people don't promise to send those who reject the Lord to everlasting hell. Nice people don't get crucified. You can take that to the bank. And nice people don't change anyone's life. And there's a lot of us, if we're honest, we would have to admit there are so many things I could do, so many people I could help if I would just get over worrying about what they think of me. There's so many truths I need to speak into people's lives, and I'm probably the one best equipped to do it. I'm just afraid because they might be angry. They might think less of me. They might think I'm a religious nut. I'm... I'd rather be nice. And if if you're sitting here right now and you're thinking to yourself, amen, you preach it, brother, these spineless, weak-willed, pussyfoot-and-wussy Christians that just, they don't have any guts, they need to speak up for the truth. If you're one of those people and you're sitting there saying, hey, man, I'll tell you the truth, I don't get pushed around, listen, Sparky, (laughs) you got your own set of issues and I'm about to get on you, okay? safely behind this pulpit. I'm going I'm to throw some bombs at you right now. See, if you're the kind of person who can make people mad 
and go to bed at night and sleep the sleep of the dead and not worry about it, I have to tell you, I envy you. That is a gift. That is a wonderful gift. God has made you that way for a purpose. And you can do amazing things for God. You can speak truth that the rest of us are terrified to speak. Every prophet in the Old Testament, I think, was your personality type. So you have incredible potential. But you can also be the worst thing that ever happened to your family. And you can also be the worst thing that ever happened to your church or your workplace or your neighborhood. And and I have to say this. I'm sad to say it, but I have to say it. Most people with your personality type that I've known do way more damage than good because we justify our anger and we love this reputation that you don't push me around and I don't back down from a fight. And, and, and we'd rather insult someone than persuade them because persuading takes work and persuading takes mutual respect and it's just easier and more fun to insult them. And we'd rather, we'd rather win an argument than save a soul because that's a lot more fun and gratifying too. And we like knowing that we can't be intimidated. And we like the fact that, you know, like Machiavelli said, it's better to be feared than loved. Boy, we buy into that. But I want you to keep something in mind. Jesus is the one we're supposed to be like, right? We're, we're, none of us is there yet, but that's what we're supposed to be aiming for. Jesus was insulted and mistreated a thousand different ways. He was called a drunkard and a glutton. He was called soft on sin. He was called a demon-possessed person. He was called a traitor to Israel. He was, had his life threatened to his face and behind his back. At one point, people picked up rocks and were ready to stun him to death. At another point, they dragged him to the edge of a cliff and were ready to throw him over the edge and kill him that way. Of course, we all know that on a certain day, he was beaten and mocked and spat upon and nailed to a cross. And never once did he lash out at someone who insulted or hurt him. Never once did he defend himself. Never once did he, did he push back. The only time his disciples saw him angry was when God's name was on the line, when someone was dragging the holy name of God through the mud, when someone was preventing others from getting to God. Jesus got angry at injustice. Jesus got angry at blasphemy. Jesus got angry at unrighteousness. He had righteous anger. And I got to tell you, there's a, there's a passage of Scripture that convicts me of sin. It's James 1.20, and it says, man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. And so the question is, how often am I angry with man's anger instead of God's anger? And the answer is, well, when's the last time I did something righteous when I got mad? Boy, that's a hard one, isn't it? Because, you know, the honest truth is when I get mad at someone who cut me off in traffic, there's nothing righteous about that. And when I get mad at somebody who gave me bad service at a restaurant, that's not God's anger. That's not righteous indignation. When I get mad at someone who insulted me or disrespected me or treated me in a way that I thought was wrong, there's nothing righteous about that. And so there's a lot of us, a whole, whole lot of us, and I'll tell you my testimony about anger some other time, but there's a whole lot of us who just need to come before the Lord and say, okay, Lord, I'm tired. I'm tired of justifying my anger. I'm tired of hurting people who love me. And I'm tired of disgracing you and driving people away from you. We just need to confess our sin and confess our our sin of anger and and arrogance to the people we've hurt and to the Lord and to somebody, somebody who we know who exemplifies patience because God's probably brought somebody like that into your life and just say, brother or sister, can you teach me what you know? 
what we all need, what God is looking for from every one of us, the nice guys and the, and the walking volcanoes alike, is humble boldness. Humble boldness. And those are two words that you don't think go together, but that's exactly what God is calling on us to be. That's what Jesus was. That's what John the Baptist was. Humble boldness. There are many of us who need to grow a gospel-centered spine and learn to speak truth into the lives of our neighbors and friends. And that guy who's mistreating his wife, we need to speak up to him. That, that woman who's obviously got, a tr- got trouble with some kind of substance abuse, we need to speak truth into her life and tell her she needs help. And, and that neighbor who's never heard the gospel needs to hear it from you. We need to stop worrying about what they're going to think of us and, and whether they'll still like us or not. See, niceness is, what, what niceness is saying is, what you think of me is more important to me than you are. We need to pray for that boldness. And others of us in this room need to pray for greater humility. And, and you just have to admit, okay, Lord, change me so that I, I can learn that I don't have to win every argument. And... and, and People aren't intimidated or argued into the kingdom. Help me to love the people who disagree with me and even the people who disrespect me like you did, Jesus. And so which one do you need more, humility or boldness? I can, I can stand up and tell you I need both because in my track record, I can see plenty of times when I was nice when I should have been humble, uh, nice when I should have been bold, plenty of times when I was arrogant when I should have been humble and still am. So pray for what you lack Pray for humility. Pray for boldness. Pray for both. So let's get back to Jesus for just a moment. Jesus was right in what he said about the temple. He wasn't just saying, get out of here because I want the Gentiles to be able to come here. This is a house of prayer for all the nations. He wasn't just saying that. He was essentially saying the same thing he said with the vine, the fig tree. Israel is done. This is no longer the bridge. And he was right. It was a shocking message. But he was right. God had a better way. 35 years later, year 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. We talked about it last week. Roman soldiers led by Titus breached the walls of Jerusalem. An incredible, unforeseen slaughter took place. Rarely in history has a city suffered like Jerusalem did that day. So many, such a high percentage of the people uh, meet death. And since the defenders retreated into the temple, the soldiers took it out on the temple too, and the temple was destroyed. And I told you last week, um, to this day, there is a, a spot on that temple, in the Temple Mount, approximately where, the think the te- where we think the temple was, that is now an Islamic shrine called the Dome of the Rock. I was there three years ago um, with a group led by a man that goes to my parents' church. He goes several times to Israel. and He's kind of an expert on the subject. And he, he took us up on the Temple Mount, and he told us about it, uh, told us about, uh, I, in fact, I've got a picture of that day I took with my phone while I was there. Um, he told us about the history of the temple. He told us that Orthodox Jews, some of them believe that the Messiah will only come when we rebuild the temple, and it has to be on that exact spot. And so every once in a while, Israeli intelligence will find out that there's a group inside Jerusalem who's plotting to blow up the Dome of the Rock. So that can clear the way for the rebuilding of the temple, an act which would probably start World War III if it ever happened. And while he's standing here telling us all the history of the temple and and where things were, we're standing there, this little group of about 15 people, suddenly a, a Palestinian man came walking up to us shouting in English, and he said, no temple here, no temple here, never been a temple here. This is mosque, has always been mosque, will always be mosque. 
And the guy who was leading us was very wise. He just turned and walked in the other direction. And we followed him. And the, the man did not follow us. And it was the only time in the 10 days that I was there that I felt the least bit unsafe. Because I, I realized right at that moment, if one of us had tried to argue with that guy, if one of us had tried to, to speak back to him, that could have been the beginning of a really serious incident, maybe even a riot. And it told me something. It told me this little plot of ground far away is still highly contested. There's still people fighting and feuding over that section of ground. And the truth is, it's a beautiful place. It's extremely historically significant, but it's not worth fighting over because it's not the bridge anymore. It hasn't been for 2,000 years. You don't go there to meet God. You meet God wherever you are because we've got a better bridge now. It's not a bridge that you have to travel miles and miles to get to. It's not a bridge that requires a perfect moral record. It's not a bridge that requires a sacrifice of whatever you have. You know why? Because Jesus is our bridge. Jesus is our priest. Jesus is our sacrifice. Jesus is our temple. Jesus is our perfection and our righteousness. When he died for our sins, he was the once and for all sacrifice so that anyone who wants to come to him can cross the bridge into a relationship with God and we're his forevermore, which is why we can come into a building like this, dressed in whatever we have, and be accepted by him, no matter what our record. My question to you is, have you crossed that bridge yet? I'm glad you're here this morning, but have you crossed that bridge? Have you come to Jesus with nothing in your hands, nothing in your hands you bring, simply to your cross, to this cross you cling. Have you come to him and have you crossed that bridge and are you right with God today? And if you have, then I want, to ask, I want you to ask the question, and it's in your at first guide, it's what I want you to pray about this week, who should I bring to Jesus? Who should I be bringing to that bridge? Because there are people in your life, I guarantee you, neighbors, coworkers, friends, relatives, acquaintances who don't know him. Maybe they were raised in church and they never heard this message or they heard it and they ignored it and they haven't heard it in years. Maybe they've never heard this at all. Maybe they have no Christian heritage whatsoever. There are people in your life who God placed in your life for the specific purpose of you being an influence on them, of you showing them what it looks like to follow Christ. You know who those people are. Are you praying for them regularly? Are you looking for opportunities to bring them just a little bit closer to faith in Him? Because see, the, the vision of this church is not we're going to preach such good sermons and have such amazing music and have such fantastic programs and such a nice building that people will come from miles around. If that was our vision, it would die. Because people today aren't looking for that. People who move into Conroe and people who've lived here for 30 years, they're not looking for any of that. Our programs will not reach anyone, but our people will. Our vision is that God would renovate the heart of the people of this church so that we'll take responsibility for being world-changing disciple-makers. Every one of us will look at that network God has brought into our lives and we'll say, what can I do to influence that person just a little bit closer to the God who loves them? So who can you bring to Jesus? If you haven't identified your list, my hope is this week as you pray that prayer over and over again, you'll know 
here's who's in my life for that purpose. 